Good morning. My name is Drew, and I am obviously on the preaching team now. Um, uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, also, you might see me working with uh, the youth group. Um, one of the things that we do, um, a popular thing we do as a youth group, is when somebody's new, we ask them what their favorite ice cream is. Um, so I'm here to tell you that my favorite ice cream is Tillamook chocolate peanut butter. And if your ice cream is, if you feel like a different ice cream, you're just wrong. I mean, it's, this one's better. But, I, you, know, um, you know, just so I get to know you guys a little bit, think of your favorite ice cream, all right? You got it? Okay, I want you to shout it all out to me on the count of three, all right? One, two, three. All right. I'm glad we all know each other now. Now let's get into the sermon. <laughs> so, do you guys find it annoying when people assume something about you? I know I think it's quite annoying. You know, about three weeks ago, I was in New Zealand. I was trying to see as many of Lord of the Rings film locations as I, as I could. But the thing is, I met a lot of different people, and... Um, it, it took them about two seconds to know that I was an American because of my accent. Believe it or not, we do have an accent. Um, and they, they at, or one, one of the gen, or a gentlemen that I was talking to, uh, he said, oh, what part of the U.S. are you from? And I said, Washington State, right, but right next to Oregon. And he said, oh, well, uh, did you go skiing last week? And... And first of all, that's kind of a weird thing to ask anyway, like just assuming, uh, anyway. But, uh, but he also was assuming that I'm, you know, I'm a skier just because I live in Washington and Oregon. And I said, no, I didn't go skiing last week. And he's like, well, what's the point of living in near Oregon if you're not going to go skiing? <laughs> I, I was thinking in my head, you know, there are a lot of other things to do in the Northwest, but first, and then second of all, you know, that's not who I am. Um, and maybe you guys can relate with somebody assuming something about you, and maybe you guys can relate with that in the way that when you've talked about how you're a Christian, maybe that caused some tension and caused them to assume certain things about you that aren't true. Um, maybe another example, um, maybe you grew up in a family where your, your parents told you what you're, who you're going to be when you grow up, and you just thought in your head, that's, that's not who I am. So, the thing is, is I think I do know something about you guys, and I believe that I'm right about it? Are you defensive about that? Are you skeptical? Or are you intrigued? Because, you know, maybe we've lost sight of who we are. Or maybe you actually think you know who you are, but you, you don't like who you are. Well, I think this, that, that one was actually the case with the Israelites in the passage that we're going to be looking at today. They, were, they knew who they were supposed to be, but they didn't like uh, who they currently 
or they weren't able to fulfill who they were supposed to be, and they didn't like it. Um, the passage we're going to be looking at today was written um, 17 years after they were in captivity. You know why they were in captivity? Because they utterly rebelled against God. They felt like God was against them. And um, 17 years, or uh, when they got cast into captivity, um, there was this world power called Babylon. And they came into Jerusalem. They knocked down Jerusalem's walls, set the whole city ablaze, including their temple, the Lord's temple, and cast them all into captivity. Now they thought, and as they were back from captivity in the passage that we're going to be looking at today, they still would have remembered how God just sent them into captivity. They probably had these lingering feelings that God is against them. They probably were filled with shame. Not all, and the, the, the fact that the, the temple was destroyed when Babylon came was a huge deal for them. Listen, the way that they related with God back then, the way that they felt right with God was they would, if they did not follow God's instruction, they went to the temple, they saw a priest, the priest made the proper sacrifices for them or the offerings so that they can be in the Lord's temple. At this point in time, the temple was not built yet. It was still in rubble. They had no way for them to feel like they were right with God. They were filled with shame. Now, maybe today you might be filled with shame in the same way. But I have a feeling that these verses are going to provide us with hope today. They sure did to the Israelites. Let's uh, turn to our Bibles, um, to the book of Zechariah. Book of Zechariah, and we're going to turn to chapter 3. I'm going to be reading in the New International Version today, and if you are using a Bible from the pew right in front of you, it's in the ESV, so the wording is going to be a little bit different, but it's okay. Um, So follow along with me. We're going to read verse 1 through 10. He said, says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you walk in obedience to me, um, and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of the things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone 
I have set in front of Joshua, there are seven eyes on that one stone and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine tree, declares the Lord Almighty. This is um, one of the passages that we are going to be in today. And one of the things that's very important for us to understand before um, we start interpreting what this says is knowing that the genre of literature this is, this is prophecy. And there are um, two things that we need to know about prophecy. One, prophecy foreshadowed things that were going to happen in the Israel's life and or things that were going to happen in the future. Okay? And also in prophecy, it's very, very symbolic. There are a lot of people and a lot of objects that represent other things. So, just so that we're all on the same page here, we're going to be specifically looking at the passage where Joshua has filthy clothes and he gets clean clothes. Um, God puts clean clothes on him. Okay, keeping that in mind, Joshua in this passage represents the entire nation of Israel. Okay, the angel of the Lord is thought by most scholars to represent God Himself, and the filthy clothes that Joshua was wearing represented sin, and the clean clothes represent righteousness. Now, like I said before, Joshua, or the Israelites, were probably experiencing a great deal of shame at this time in their lives. And the passage seems to indicate this. It says that Joshua was in filthy clothes. Okay, the word used for filth here in the Hebrew language was used to communicate the filthiest of filth. It was actually probably referring to feces. And here he is in the presence of God, the God of the universe. And it says that he was in filthy clothes. And it also says that Satan was rebuking, or not rebuking him, Satan was accusing him. Now it doesn't say what exactly Satan was accusing him of. But I have an idea. He's probably saying, look at you. Do you really think God will accept you? Do you really think God will love you after what you've done? Now what does the Lord say? He says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now, fire represented Israel's captivity. God was saying, haven't I saved this man from captivity? Take the hint, Satan. I love this man. I have saved him. And then it says, now Joshua was dressed and filthy clothes as he stood before the angel, God. 
And God said to those who were standing before him, it's time to remove his filthy clothes. Then he, God, said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Now this represents a, um, a future time that Israel will be able to experience. A time where Israel will be able to stand in front of God completely rid of shame and completely righteous in God's sight. Now, what is that saying to us? Well, as you guys may have pieced together, this is foreshadowing the coming of Christ. The time where Christ came to earth and he lived a perfect life and he took the penalty for all of our sin so that we do not have to experience that penalty and we no longer have to be filled with shame anymore because of what Christ has done on the cross, as we have put our faith in him, we are completely righteous in God's sight. It's a beautiful truth. It's a beautiful truth. But you may be thinking to yourself, okay, Drew, I understand that truth. It's not that hard to understand, right? But why do I feel so filled with shame all the time? I mean, all of us have those sins that make us feel more shameful than others. I actually want you to think of what those sins are right now. Okay? Got it? All right. God has set you free of that sin. He Still, he sees you as righteous. But your question is a fair one. Why do I not feel that way? Well, I'll give you a answer. I believe that we see things from one point of view, from our point of view, and God sees things from another point of view. It's like we're looking at two different canvases. All right? Being real from our canvas, from our perspective, we still sin. And when we sin, it hurts people. It makes people feel broken. It makes people feel sad. It makes people feel sometimes angry. And even when we turn away from our sin, and even when we ask for forgiveness for those people, sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes it takes a while for them to forgive us. Sometimes, it, often, it takes a long time to heal. But the danger is, is when we take our experience and we project that onto God's experience. Now, let's talk about God's experience. God knew before you were even born that you are going to commit that sin that causes you so much shame right here in the present. And what did he do? He took the anger, 
the wrath that we deserved for that sin that God literally did feel, but he cast it onto his son 2,000 years ago so that it's dealt with, it's gone. So that when he sees us, he actually sees us as righteous. We will probably always feel some kind of tension between seeing us, seeing ourselves through the way ourselves and the world sees us because we still sin and the way God sees us. We'll probably always experience some tension there, but there is that, this truth that God does see us as righteous and we do not need to be filled with shame when we approach him. He does see us as righteous. So that's, that's the first point. God has given us righteousness. I also want to bring your attention to verse 8. We're going to read verse 8 and 9. It says, Listen, High Priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of the things to come, I am going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Now, that is foreshadowing the coming of Christ, but it's also foreshadowing another day. It's foreshadowing a day where Jesus will put an end to all sin. And it's foreshadowing a day where we will be with Jesus in the flesh and he will take any lingering shame that we feel and he will remove it forever. No more shame, ever. So, God has given us righteous. Now, um, the second point, um, I want want to um, refresh your memory that the Israelites were probably feeling shame but they were also probably feeling like they were void of purpose. A lot of their purpose uh, relied on the practices within the temple. Like I said, the temple was destroyed. The Levites who were set on this earth to be priests were unable to fulfill their priestly duties. But let's look at the passage and see how God gives hope in their situation. Verse 6 and 7, it says, The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Governing my house, what does God mean by that? It means that God is giving the Levites once again an opportunity to decide disputes in the sanctuary and what God means by have charge of my courts. He's giving the Levites an opportunity to um, guard God's 
um, temple, God's courts, from idolatry. Now, I realize that this is probably very, like we can't really relate with this. We don't have a temple, you know, that our purpose is not to do ministry in a temple. But this was a huge deal for the Israelites. God was giving them an opportunity to fulfill the purpose that they were always supposed to fulfill. How does, that re- how does that apply to us? What applies in the way that God has given us a purpose as well. And we were mentioning how the, the Levites were priests. What's interesting is in the New Testament, um, there's this book called First Peter. And who is it addressed to? All believers. And it says, you are. Are pre- you are a priest. We are all priests. Now what does it mean to be a priest? Well, essentially a priest brought somebody to God. You know, they saw a priest. Um, the Israelites saw a priest. Um, the priest did the sacrifices. They um, did whatever offerings that they needed to make so that they can be in the presence of God. Now, our priestly duty looks a little bit different in function but we still have the task of bringing people to God. What does that look like? It means that the Holy Spirit lives in us and we can show people who God is through our actions. And it also means that we have the awesome opportunity to help people place their faith in Jesus so that they can have a relationship with him and they can be seen as righteous and rid of their shame. That's our purpose. Now, let's get really, really practical because right now I'm still in the ideas realm. Let's get practical. A Christian with a purpose can look like many different things and it depends on your context. A Christian with a purpose can look like a young athlete who is on a basketball team and... There's always those people who are, you know, aren't as good as the other people on the team. And it, maybe it looks like when they make a mistake and everybody's ashamed of them, maybe it looks like that person going and encouraging them, showing them who God is in that way. Maybe a Christian with a purpose looks like a more mature believer taking a less mature believer to Carol's Corner (laughs) and building relationship with them and teaching them how to be a disciple of Jesus. Maybe a Christian with a purpose looks like a mother or father who after a long day of work gets home and sits down with their child maybe at the dinner table, maybe in the living room, and listens to how their child's day was and empathizing with what's going on in their life. It can look like so many different things, but the point is, is our purpose is a beautiful purpose, and we all have one. We all have the same purpose. It might look differently. So, 
before I get into my third point, I'd like to tell you just a really, really quick story. Like I said, I was in New Zealand about three weeks ago, um, and I already said that um, it doesn't take much for people to know that I'm an American. So I was, I was struck because three people that I met, when they met, when they met me, they immediately associated me with Donald Trump. And I'm not here to say what I think of Donald Trump. That's not my intention here. But I will say that the people that I met were not shy in telling me what they thought of Donald Trump. (laughs) And the point I'm trying to make is our leader affects our identity. We carry that with us. Why? Because our leader, in our case our president, What's our relationship, okay? Um, Well, it's a relationship of submission, and it's a relationship where we show respect to that person. Not necessarily as a person, but as a leader. We respect the office, right? It affects us. And when we don't have a good leader, it doesn't feel so good, right? So the Israelites were... They didn't have a good leader. Let's just put it frankly, okay? Um, they didn't have a king actually at this time, but they probably would have, they had a long history of bad kings. And their last king was King Zedekiah. You know what that guy did? Well, it says the Bible, the Bible says that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Um, but it also says that Zedekiah didn't like that Babylon was like becoming this world power. So he made allies with everybody around him and tried to revolt against Babylon. You know what happened? Well, Babylon came, destroyed Jerusalem, set the whole place on fire, destroyed their temple, and, and made them go into exile. Not, not really a good king, right? Uh, not someone that they would probably look up to. Ze- Zechariah is filled with, it, it foreshadows this king that's coming. And it's a very special king. There are, many, there are a few places in Zechariah where this king is foreshadowed, but I want to bring you to one of those. It's uh, Zechariah chapter 9. So go ahead and flip to, in your Bibles. It's chapter 9. It'll also be on the screen. Um, all right, so it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter, daughter Jerusalem, See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from a frame and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, I'm sure there's some Bible readers in this audience, considering that you know we're in a church. And uh, does any of this sound familiar to you? In the Gospels, Jesus rode to Jerusalem riding on a donkey, on a colt, actually. Um, Jesus is this king that is being foreshadowed to the Israelites. Jesus is our king. Now, is this good news? 
Well, let's test this. So when I, I can submit and respect any leader in my life and not feel good about it, but respecting and submitting to a leader and feeling good about it, that's a different question. So the question that I ask for any leader that I'm going to respect and submit to, I ask the question, does this person care about me? Does this person care about those I love? Now let's test this theory with Jesus, looking at our passage of him riding on a donkey. And the more I think about it, the more it strikes me. Here's why. So, the all-knowing God, well, actually, let, let me back up a little bit. Jesus was riding to Jerusalem to specifically the Jewish synagogue, okay, when this happened. Jesus, the Lord, the all-knowing Lord of the universe, would have known that later that week he was going to be murdered. And who were his murderers? Well, the Pharisees, some Roman guards. And where was he going? He was going to the Jewish synagogue. Do you guys think the Pharisees were there? I think it's a logical assumption that, yeah, they were probably there. Now, Jesus could have rode on a war horse, and he could have put an end to those people, and it would have been completely just. What does he do? He doesn't ride on a war horse. He rides on a colt, a symbol of peace. Then he walks in there, knowing that his murderers were right there. And he taught. Then he went home. Why? Because he knew that what these people needed more than judgment was the forgiveness of sin. And that goes for me too. God knew that I needed something a little bit more than judgment. He knew that I needed freedom from sin. So, back to my question. Does Jesus care about me? Does Jesus care about those I love? I think the answer is an astounding yes. Can I submit to this king and feel good about it? I think so. Because I know that this king knows what's best for me and wants what's best for me. I can respect a king like that. Jesus is our king. That's another thing I know about you. I want to take you guys to a passage, uh, of a verse that can be interpreted wrong. <laughs> okay, um, Let's go back to uh, chapter 3. I know we're jumping around. Chapter 3. Um, and we're going to be in verse 6 again. Um, 6 and 7. Now, this is the passage where I talked about how God was giving Israel their purpose back. All right? It says, The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If 
you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements. Then you will have your purpose back. Okay. So, there is a wrong way to interpret this, all right? Um, well, actually, I'll start with the right interpretation and then the wrong one. Uh, you got, I mean, it's in the Bible. Yes, the Israelites were to walk in obedience to God in order to receive their identity, and you can make an argument for them receiving their righteousness and their king, okay? The text indicates that. But here's the thing. We can take that and say, all right, so the Israelites had to um, not mess up at all. And if they messed up, they wouldn't receive their purpose, their righteousness, and their king. Therefore, if we mess up at all, God's not going to give us our purpose. God's not going to give us our righteousness. God's not going to give us our king. It's not how we should read this. Here's why. The Israelites related to God in a different way. They were under the old covenant, okay? We are under what's called the new covenant, which says it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. By trusting in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I receive my salvation and I receive my identity, my righteousness, my, my king, and my purpose. But, let me ask you guys a question. What's your favorite candy? Got it? What's your favorite candy in the world? All right? Okay. You just got that, well, okay. Say you got that candy for Christmas, Okay. What are the implications of getting that piece of candy? Well, you're going to eat that piece of candy because it's your favorite piece of candy. And candy's good. You're going to eat it. That's the implication. Now, are there implications to us receiving an identity? Yes. There are implications of that. Let's start with purpose. God has given us a purpose. What are the implications? We've... We live out our purpose. God has given us righteousness. What is that? What are the implications of that? Well, we should probably do what we are, right? We should live a righteous life. God has given us a king. What are the implications of that? Well, we submit and respect our king. Now go back to the piece of candy. All right? Let's say you didn't eat that piece of candy. And let's say that we're living in a world where you, if you eat a piece of candy, you don't gain weight and it's healthy for you, okay? Say you didn't eat that piece of candy. That just makes no sense, okay? You eat the piece of candy, it's good. But it not only makes sense, my gosh, it's worth it, right? In the same way, when we live out our identity, it is not only makes sense, but it's worth it. Let's talk a little bit about the first truth. 
God has made us righteous. And if you remember me saying that we will probably always struggle with seeing ourselves as righteous the way God sees us, right? Because that's not always true with our experience, right? So when we look in the mirror, we might see some filth. We have some lingering shame. But listen, here's one of the reasons why it's worth it to live a righteous life. Instead of looking in the mirror and seeing somebody who just crawled through a mud pit and being filled with so much shame, by the power of the Holy Spirit enabling us to live a righteous life, we can look in the mirror and instead of seeing that person who just crawled through a mud pit, we can see just a few specks. God can help us live a righteous life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, it's healing to us and it's healing to those around us. That's why it's worth it. That's one of the reasons why it's worth it. Now let's go to our purpose, all right, that we talked about. Um, Exemplifying God through our actions, helping people get to know who God is, helping them maybe place their faith in Jesus. Now think of a time where you had a good conversation with somebody about who God was. Maybe you even were able to pray with them and help them place their faith in Jesus. Was that worth it to you? Well, the answer might be, actually, I don't know. You know, I don't know if the conversation got to that person, I don't know if, you know, they they said they placed their faith in Jesus, but I don't really know if it was, that actually happened. So you could say, I don't know, and I, I get that, I've been there. But here's the thing. Someday we're gonna be on the new earth. We'll be walking around. What if we see that person? And that person comes up to us and gives us a hug and says, thank you. I think that's worth it. Now let's go back to our king thing. A king idea. Jesus is our king. I want to uh, read the second half of that passage that we talked about. The first half, uh, you guys don't have to go back to it. It'll, it'll be on the screen. Um, first half was Jesus riding on a donkey, but there's another description of Jesus as king. It says, I will take away the chariots from a frame and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now this passage captures two realities about Jesus. One being the reality that we already talked about, a loving king who wants the best for us. But the other half of it talks about a king who is going to establish peace on earth one day. Now, there are implications to that. God is going to put an end to sin, judge those who have not placed their faith in Jesus. 
it's, it's a beautiful reality that God's gonna establish peace, but it's also a, I guess, maybe scary reality as well. And as we continue in our faith, and as we place our faith in Jesus and follow him as king, we are able to know that we will be able to experience that peace and we will be on Jesus' side during that. But there's also that truth that Jesus loves and cares for us. And when we submit to Jesus, we can know that that is what is good for us. God knows what is good for us. So, God has given you guys an identity. God has made you righteous. God has given you a purpose. God has given you a king. And it's worth it to live out that identity. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we realize that there are people um, in this audience that may not have been, or who haven't placed their faith in you yet and haven't experienced this identity. If that is you today, that ha- you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity. All you say is you say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And I believe Jesus did what he said he did. And I trust in him giving me righteousness and making me right in your sight, God the Father. And I want to begin trusting you. So I gotta say, I I just wanna give you a minute. Um, If that's you, go ahead and say that. God, I just want to praise you for uh, anyone who you just made righteous and you gave them a purpose and you gave them a king who loves them. And Lord, I just pray for the rest of us that we, that this identity will become a reality and that we would live out this identity and we would know that it is worth it. I ask this in your name. Amen.